Welcome to Between the Gutters Podcast, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with me is, uh, is our other co-host. This is Drew. What's up, everybody? Yo, yo, yo. So for today's episode, what we're going to do is we're going to do another book club episode where we uh, talk about a comic that is near, well, I wouldn't say near and dear, but it's it's something that me and Drew are both fond of and that we've, we've both read uh, in, in our past, in our childhood, and it always stuck with us. So the story that we're going to do today is Spider-Man, Revenge of the Sinister Six. This takes place in the adjectiveless Spider-Man comics, issues 18 to 23, published in 1992. The creative team is Eric Larson. He's the writer, penciler, and the inker. Uh, Rick Parker is the letterer, and uh, Gregory Wright is the colorist. Is is there anything uh, that you wanted to add, Drew, before we go into a brief synopsis? I guess I was just going to say that this comic book story is something that we read when we were kids. I mean, it's from 1992. I was like, uh, I was nine years old. You're a couple years older than me. So, uh, yeah. you know, but we were still pretty little. And for some reason, this story has always, it's always stood out to us. Even all these years later, uh, for some, for whatever reason, we, we decided to go back to it and talk about it for the podcast just because it was a story that, I mean, I, I'm not going to oversell it. I'm, I'm not going to say this is like one of the great Spider-Man stories that everybody <laughs> has to read. It's, it's certainly not an evergreen Spider-Man comic, but it, it just happens to be a comic that we liked a lot when we were kids. And, you know, I'm able to, and I think maybe both of us are able to take off our nostalgia-tinged glasses and just look at a comic that we liked from when we were kids and appreciate it on its own merits and, yeah. you know, still acknowledge that it's got a lot of faults to it. But yeah. despite all that, there are still elements of it that we can yeah. we can enjoy. Yeah, I, I'll add to that by saying that in spite of all of the emphasis that we place on the content and the quality of comics and, and and the substance of them, it's, you know what, there are certain things that are not quantifiable, and sometimes you can just like things just because you like them. Yeah, there are people that yeah. are really into the Snyder Cut. Yeah, and... Shane has texted me earlier today, <laughs> man, and he was telling me that on Rotten Tomatoes, the... The user score was at like 95% fresh. Yeah. And I'm sure that if you told them that critics didn't think much of it, they'd just be like, what do critics know? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and like, I'm not even going to say, I'm not even going to defend critics all the time because there's certainly a level of pomposity that exists there. And they're not always right either. But I, I think as long as you're self-aware enough, to know that you like it just because you like it and you're not going to defend it to your last breath as the height of, of artistic merit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of artistic merit. If you can have that level of self-awareness, I will give you your enjoyment of the Snyder cut just because <laughs> it's just one of those things where I think we've talked about this in the past in, in previous episodes, I believe that we are of the opinion that just because something is great doesn't necessarily mean that we have to like it. Yeah. And just because we like something doesn't necessarily mean it's great in terms of quality, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's okay to have that level of dissonance, you know? 
Yeah, like uh, you can you can acknowledge that something that you really enjoy and just have fun with isn't necessarily a good piece of work or you know quality yeah. art with a capital A, but it's yeah. just something that you can enjoy. You know, nothing nothing wrong with that unless what you enjoy is like breaking the law or something. Then yeah, that wouldn't be good. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I'll give a brief synopsis of the story. It starts out with Spider-Man's in the middle of adventures, but unbeknownst to him, Dr. Octavius has, uh, also known as Dr. Octopus, has just reacquired his uh, mechanical arms that are grafted to his body. And, the adamantium uh, versions of those arms. Yeah, right, exactly. So they're grafted to his bodies, and he has a mental control over them. But in addition to the fact that he's reacquired these arms, he's acquired the version of them that are made out of ad- adamantium. So adamantium? Adamantium, sorry. So Adamantium. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good one, man. Well, that's how I always pronounced it as a kid. So When I was a kid, I pronounced the character's name Colossus. I pronounced it Glorious. <laughs> you know, the yeah. X-Man? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is probably the most dangerous version of Dr. Octopus that we've seen. You know, now that he has his arms, he's what he wants to do is he wants to get the band back together, which is the Sinister Six. He's going to do what every top-tier villain does. He wants to take over the world. And it's up to <laughs> Spider-Man and a ragtag team of who's who in the Marvel Universe to band together to stop. At least stop. the popular characters from the 90s. Some of them I don't even know if they're necessarily popular in the they 90s. They were popular in the 90s. I mean, it's got Deathlock, Ghost Rider, the Hulk. But was Nova popular in the 90s? I feel it. I, I, I'm personally of the mind that Eric Larson was just using guys that he liked. But, I think it's just guys that he liked, too. Nova was yeah. a guy that he always had an affinity with. Yeah, yeah. It's a good well, mix. It's a good I mix mean, of popular... Solo was on the team, dude. I'm yeah. pretty sure he wasn't popular. <laughs> Solo wasn't on Spider-Man's team, exactly, but he he was definitely a, a guest star in a couple of issues. Yeah. Nobody knows who Solo is today. He did have a miniseries a couple of years back. Who wrote uh, that one? I don't remember, but this was when they were reintroducing a bunch of characters from that era. So this was we had a solo miniseries, we had a full killer miniseries, we had a slapstick miniseries. There might Dark have Hawk. been a couple other ones. Was Darkhawk a part of that group? Maybe. Wasn't there wasn't there a Darkhawk miniseries a few years ago? Yeah, but I don't think it was in the same I'm not sure if it's in the same like initiative because i feel like they were releasing these guys at the same time like around the same time period to okay to like make a push for them but i don't remember if dark hawk was in that same grouping got it but anyways so it's spider-man teaming up with a who's who of uh characters in the marvel universe to take on uh the sinister six the big the bad the six uh am i missing anything or are there any details that you feel <laughs> I mean, like that, you want to that's pretty much what it's about it, it's it's yeah. not a very complicated story it really isn't <laughs> it's you could say that there's a subplot with spider-man and mary jane where mj she's trying to boost her profile as a as an actress so she gets she auditions for this movie and the movie is going to be a blockbuster, but it's going to require her to do a nude scene. 
So yeah. there's the subplot in the issues where Peter and MJ have these conversations because Peter isn't really comfortable with Mary Jane, you know, shaking her goodies at the camera just yeah. to increase her, uh, to, to boost her career. Yeah. And he's even like, what'll happen to Aunt May when she finds out? She's going to get a heart attack. Yeah. Which is, I mean, reading it in 2021, there's something kind of funny about that idea <laughs> where like an old person is just like, oh, heavens. And then she just dies. <laughs> Even in 1992, I thought that was pretty funny. It's pretty funny, man. Like, well, no, that's not true. Like, when I, in 1992, when I was reading this as a kid, I think I took it on face value. So, to me, it was like, oh, this is a legitimate conflict, right? But you as an adult... You don't adult, think that's a legitimate conflict that somebody could have with his spouse? I mean, I don't know very many people who are married to actresses, so... There's that. I mean, I'm sure it's legitimate on some level, but it's I don't know. There's it was there's there was something just funny about that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Sure, for sure. You mentioned earlier that this was something that you read when you were a kid, right, Drew? And Exactly. Yeah, and it was something that in terms of my background with it, I I I got it as a kid. Or I got rather I got exposure to it as a kid because my brother was buying these and I was reading his copies. So that's how I was exposed to it as a kid, and it was something that always stuck to me for several reasons. I'm the first thing I feel like we need to mention is, or that I feel like I need to mention is, uh, you know, for all of the downplaying that we did at the beginning of the episode. I, I have to admit, even now, as an adult looking at this comic, the artwork is gorgeous. Like, it's just sensational artwork. So even though the story itself isn't anything special and Eric Larson's writing is not particularly great, his dialogue is, uh, you know... At best, I could say it's serviceable. Exactly. I was just about to say that. It's serviceable <laughs> dialogue, <laughs> you know? Um, I, I would have to say that the centerpiece for this series or for this uh, story has to be the art for me i don't know if you feel the same way drew i feel the same way it's all about the art and the character of spider-man that's really what it boils down to like i was saying i read it when i was a kid too so i was i was nine years old maybe eight when it came out i'd only been buying comics or i mean my parents had been buying me comics for only maybe half a year or a year at this point. It was one of the first comics I had where I was able to get consecutive issues to put the story together. But the funny thing is, is that even when I was a kid, so this is a six issue storyline, but when I was a kid, I missed issue 18. I missed part one of the story. So I only had issues 19 through 23. So I never really saw, I never owned the first part of the story the only way that I was able to read it back then was because one of my neighbors was also into comics. He was a kid that that was, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four years older than me. So he had more money and, and I guess just better access to comics and stuff. So he actually had like a, a bunch of comics that I would go over to his house and, and read. And he had the issue that I was missing. And that's the only way I read it. So as a kid, I started off with part two. And that just kind of throws you a smack dab in the middle of things where 
Mm. Uh, Spider-Man is already about to fight uh, the Sinister Six, and then the Hulk jumps in, and there's a big battle. And I was pretty much just, you know, a sucker for that because yeah. I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, so I had those issues when I was a kid, and then at, at some point when I got a little bit older, my parents asked me if I still wanted my comics. I might have been like 12 or 13 at that point, and I guess... It was right around probably the time of Age of Apocalypse and the Clone Saga, and I was losing interest in superhero comics. And my parents asked me if I still wanted to keep my comics because they real they noticed I wasn't you know pouring over them every weekend anymore like I used to. So I was like, yeah, I don't. I guess you can give them away if you want because I think my dad had a friend's a coworker's kid who was younger and was interested in comics, so they gave away my collection and. And uh, it was only a couple years later, uh, I mean, a couple years ago, as a grown man, when I was in a, when we were in, uh, <laughs> you know, doing some quarter bin diving. Yeah. I found issues 19 through 23 again. So I found parts two through six of the store. And I was like, dude, I, I'll just pick this up out of nostalgia, you know, for like for, for 25 cents. I'll, I'm just going to do it. it. It's something that reminds me of my childhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I still... It, didn't have that first issue, man. It took me so long to find it. I think I found that first issue at a random sale in in a 50 cent bin uh, maybe a couple years ago. So it, it took me a while to to finally own the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, so I, when I was a kid, my, you know, my brother had the issues, but he's since, uh, I want to say that he lost him or something like that, but we it, either we lost him or we just read him so much that they just fell apart. Um, mm -hmm. And what ended up happening was after you got your issues, actually, it, it struck a nostalgia nerve in me as well. And I remember going to a show, I want to say last year, oh, not even last year, maybe 2019, uh, fairly yeah. recently. And I just happened to find all of it in the quarter bin, I think. So I was just like, man, it's the whole thing. And uh, this is going to sound kind of backhanded, but I don't think there was a lot to get at that show. Uh, so I was just like, yeah, I'll just grab these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it, it's fine. Like, I, I have fun looking at these, and I, I kept it. I decided to keep it. So it's cool. Um, so, when you were a kid, had you been reading the Spider-Man comics at that time period? I have a bunch of uh, Spider-Man comics from... Well, I don't know if they're exactly from that same era, but uh, I can say that as a kid, one of the comics that I was consistently getting a hold of was Spider-Man, just because I recognized Spider-Man. And, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I was a very experimental kid. Or a very uh, adventurous kid when it came to my comics. So I tended yeah. to limit myself to what I knew. So I had a bunch of the uh, Bagley Michelinis. I think it was Michelinie. Maybe it was. Yeah, it was Michelinie writing Amazing Spider-Man at the time. Yeah, so um, I, I actually have quite a few of the story arcs that came out. So I had uh, Round Robin. Yep. Uh -huh. Another amazing Spider-Man story. Yeah. 
and it's it's a it's similar to to Revenge of the Sinister Six in that it was another just massive beat 'em up with a bunch of different characters, a bunch of it's Spider Man and a bunch of superheroes just taking on an army of bad guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other uh big story that I I didn't have the whole thing, but actually, you know what? Now that I think of it, I think I did have the whole thing. Oh, uh, it was Amazing Spider-Man. I'm pretty sure it was Amazing Spider-Man, and it was uh, Revenge of the Spider Slayers. I think it was called. Yeah, was it yeah. Invasion of the Spider Slayers? Might have been Invasion. I forget. I, f- I know what the story you're talking about, but I forget the title yeah. of the story. Yeah, it was. Um... <laughs> well, okay, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but it was a story that was. So the Spider Slayers were these uh mechanical spider-man hunting robots that were created in early on in spider-man's uh mythology and michelini i guess brought them back for you know for the 90s for that era of of spider-man comics and it was the era that introduced the more modern version of the spider slayers as well as it reintroduced uh i think his name was alistair smythe yeah, they yeah. used them in the cartoon also. Yeah, exactly. That's so I remember, and I hated the cartoon, but I remember watching that, and then I remember the seeing Alistair Smythe on, and I was like, whoa, they uh they adapted that story. <laughs> yeah, the flavor of the month. <laughs> yeah, directly yeah. adapted to the cartoon. <laughs> yeah, but I will say this: um, when I read when I was a kid and I was reading those. Uh, the idea of Spider-Man fighting these robots, that was really cool to me. And on top of that, I know you're not a fan of Bagley, but I really enjoyed those Spider-Slayer designs. I was, like, into it as a kid. Yeah, I don't think I bothered with that story. Like, I remember it. I definitely yeah. read it, but it, it wasn't something that I particularly cared about, even as a kid. I did yeah. read Round Robin, though, and I had... All- I had most of the issues of that story. Yeah. And and for some reason, I, I liked it. You don't have to have a reason. You just <laughs> well, like the it, reason man. was because I was like nine years old. Yeah. <laughs> or eight well, years old or whatever. Yeah. Well, the thing about the Spider Slayers was, as a kid, I was just happy to see Spider-Man fight robots. So I was like, okay, I'm about this. Yeah. Yeah, that I was just wanted Spider-Man comics. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I had a... Uh, a bunch of the web of Spider-Mans around this era. I had a bunch of the Jim DeMatteis spectacular Spider-Mans. Those are the ones that actually still hold up today. Yeah, I'd, of, I'd, of, I'd agree with that. Yeah, they, out of all of those yeah. comics of the era, like those Jim DeMatteis spectacular Spider-Mans are still good comics today. Yeah, when you read them as an adult with with uh, you know with with your adult perspective. They're they're probably the one with the most uh, substance, for sure. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. I even I will, had a bunch of the Todd McFarlane issues of Spider-Man. I had a few of them, but yeah, I I can't say that those. I I had a bunch of those. Uh, well, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say a bunch because I was still a kid. So when I was a kid, to me, a bunch was like four or five. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> 
man, like when we, yeah, if we really chase this rabbit hole down the rabbit hole, there's uh, like I was, I, I had a bunch of exposure to Spider-Man comics like you, uh, just through an older kid in my life who was into comics. So like this older kid was teaching me about cosmic Spider-Man and, uh, all the different stuff that was going on there and how Spider-Man had like, so when I was a kid, I thought Spider-Man could fly and he could, he had unlimited super strength. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was like his default mode. Yeah. I didn't realize you thought he could beat up the tri-sentinel. Exactly. I didn't realize that that was just a special story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Did you yeah. know that Revenge of the Sinister Six was a sequel to a story from Amazing Spider-Man called Return of the Sinister Six? Uh, I think that's something that I learned later on. And I, I don't think I ever read Return of the Sinister Six. Did you ever read that one? Yeah, I read that when I was a kid. So I, today my memory of it is like I don't remember anything. I just remember yeah. it because uh that neighbor friend of mine had it yeah and he had a bunch of the because eric larson drew that story also but it was written yeah. by david michelinie yeah uh and he had he just had a bunch of amazing spider-man issues so i i read his when we were kids uh but i don't really remember anything about it yeah and i don't think it's really necessary to understanding this story because revenge yeah, of the sinister six is so simple that you don't really need to know anything about anyone. You don't even need to know who Spider-Man is. <laughs> I think that's actually pretty true. You can go into this not knowing who Spider-Man is and just completely enjoy it just for uh, for what it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, speaking of like the history of the Sinister Six and uh, their previous incarnations... Did you have any information to give regarding like what this uh, what the Sinister Six is? Like we've I I believe we talked about it a little bit in our Spider-Man uh podcast episode. Yeah, when we were doing our uh, top 25 countdown and we got to the Ditko and Lee Amazing Spider-Man, one of the issues that stood out in that run was I believe it was the first annual and that was a story that introduced the Silver Age Sinister Six, which was comprised of Dr. Octopus, Electro, Sandman, Mysterio. Uh, Chameleon Craven, might have been it. Craven the Hunter. Yeah. Was it Was it uh, the Chameleon? I think it was Chameleon because they didn't have uh, Hobgoblins or Green Goblin. Well, no, Green Goblin might have been on it too, wasn't he? No, I don't think he was in it. Okay. Okay, so it might have been the Chameleon because uh, this version of the Sinister Six had Hobgoblin, and I don't think he was around at that time because I feel like he was a later character. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was but, Vulture. Vulture, that's who it was. Wait, so you have Vulture, Craven. Oh, Craven wasn't the one that was in this version, was he? Correct. Craven's not okay. in today's, or he wasn't in the 90s incarnation because he was dead by then. Yeah. The original Sinister Six was Doc Ock, Sandman, Craven, Mysterio, Electro, and Vulture. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, and that annual that you were talking about, from what I remember, it was 
larger than your average comic. It might have been like an oversized annual or something. Yeah, like that. it was one but, of those seventy or eighty pagers. Yeah, so it was it was a big deal. Uh, the Sinister Six are a big deal in Spider-Man's mythology because they're basically all of his worst enemies teaming up to fight him specifically. Yeah. And I don't know about you, Drew, but in terms of uh, superhero, supervillain teams, or, or in terms of supervillain teams, um, I think the Sinister Six holds a pretty special place in my heart. Like they were, they were a team of villains for me as a kid, uh, that always stuck out to me just because they were all of Spider-Man's, at, at least as I saw them, his worst, most powerful villains, and I could name each and every single one of them. Whereas, uh, the other teams that I could think of from that era, the other supervillain teams, I didn't really have any point of reference for any of them or i i I couldn't name them right yeah so okay and i've mentioned this before on other podcasts but when i was a kid my like the majority of my uh accessibility to comics was through the superhero cards so that that might explain why i don't know quite as many or why i didn't know quite as many villains but uh on 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 the different teams but like i could name teams like the freedom force or the Nasty Boys, uh, the Acolytes, but I could not name like a single person on any of those teams. You know? Come on, dude! I thought you were a comic book fan. <laughs> Fabian Cortez is on the Acolytes. There you that's, go. That's one person. What about the one. Nasty Boys? Come on, come on. I I just know Mister Sinister. There you like go. I, He's the leader. Yeah. That counts. <laughs> that counts. No, but uh, I mean, when you were a kid, were you able to name all the like? Could you name like all of the various uh, members of the supervillain teams? When I was a kid, yes, yeah. because I was obsessed with with comic books at the time, and I would reread the same comics over and over, so I memorize them. <laughs> nice. Well, but again, I I didn't have a lot of like I don't think I even have any X Men comics when I was a kid, so I I didn't really have. Um, yeah, I didn't have access to to those comics, and I couldn't name the villains on those teams, dude. Oh, okay. Yeah, when I was yeah. a kid, I was all about Silver Surfer, Spider Man, and the X Men. Like those were the three main things I was extremely into. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would still read a bunch of other stuff, whatever I could, but in in terms of the stuff that uh, I would ask my my parents to buy for me, it was it was those three things, man. And nice, nice. when I say spider-man it's like all the spider-man titles like anything that i would find so i I didn't necessarily have a bunch of issues in order but i had a bunch of issues from the different series (laughs) because he had like four different titles at the time so i would have you know two issues of spider-man here and then one issue of amazing spider-man three issues of web of and another couple issues of spectacular but none of them were consecutive so i rarely ever had a complete (laughs) story it's hard to be a kid to collect comics, uh, and especially if your parents don't know anything about comics. Like, yeah. you're just kind of lost in the wilderness, uh, fending for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know. And with with X Men, I was just buying anything that had an X in the title. So I had random <laughs> issues of um, X Factor, yeah. as well as Uncanny X Men and X Men when when that came out. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't. X Force. 
I did not have that experience just because, uh, like, I didn't, like, comic book shops weren't really a thing until I was able to start taking the bus on my own. So yeah. my parents just didn't know where to go for comic books. So I didn't even know that comic book stores were a thing, you know? Yeah, I yeah. guess I was just fortunate because there there was at least one pretty decent-sized comic book store really close to my house. Oh, yeah, I remember that place. Time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a a vet now, a veterinarian. Yeah. On some level, I think it's better off as a vet because that place was kind of dingy. <laughs> yeah. It was one of those dark places. It was a dungeon. Had, it was a dungeon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they. I remember they had a Street Fighter II arcade machine. So there were a lot of high schoolers every day. Uh, you know, crowded around it. So it, it had a lot of people in the store. And I just remember going in as a kid and, and just being super intimidated. Uh, uh. You know, like I, I didn't really fit in. Like there, there, I didn't see other kids with their with their dads in there. Yeah. Um, so I, it was more about like just going in there, looking at stuff uh, as fast as possible so I could just buy something and leave. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Man, like that... Like, based on what I know of you now, that's that's kind of a stark contrast to me to yeah, imagine a version like of you that the most I would ever just... spend in the comic store would back then would be like twenty thirty minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's a super stark contrast because, like nowadays, if if me or you go to a comic book store, we're just immersed. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, nowadays, most of the time, there aren't really a ton of people in the stores, so we can dig through boxes of comics at our own leisure. Yeah, for sure. Back then, it was just a different world, man. It was. Comics were, comics were pretty much at their peak selling point. It was the 90s, and this was right before Image Comics launched I mean, Eric Larson was one of the founders of Image Comics, and this was this might yeah. be his last work for Marvel before moving on to Image, I think. Uh, you mean not including the stuff that he would come back to do later, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that I mean, makes he, sense. He just he just did a Marvel comic a few months ago, I think. Really? What do you do? Uh, Captain America: The End, I think. Really? Huh. I gotta look into that. <laughs> Yeah, Interesting. it might have been, maybe it wasn't a few months ago, maybe it was just sometime last year. Yeah. But I, I remember he did a one-shot of something. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool that he, he'd go back to that, you know? Because yeah. at this point, he doesn't really need uh, yeah. to do he anything He still does Savage Dragon. Yeah, and that's just like massively ongoing. Mm-hmm. I don't know who collects it. I've never met anyone that collects it but you know it's it's got to be making some sort of sales right yeah good enough for him to keep on doing it yeah yeah when i was a kid i i had some savage dragon uh we just recently got those well not recently but you know semi recently got those uh digital bundles image digital bundles and there are a bunch of Savage Dragon comics in that, so that's true. I'm yeah. hoping that at some point to go back and uh, look at some of those. Yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like fun to look at. It really is. 
it's like really dynamic and uh everybody's just almost ridiculously buff and like kind of the peak uh physical condition in peak physical condition you know <laughs> yeah and um there's just a lot of action going on, lots of energy, uh, like, just, just by looking at it, it's just non-stop action is, is the only way that I can describe his comic, you know? Yeah, compared yeah. to the other big names of the early 90s, he's definitely the guy that I think I appreciate the most. When you think about the founders of image who were those guys were the most popular artists of their time you know todd yeah. mcfarlane and yeah. jim lee are usually considered you know the top two and then rob liefeld was extremely popular then you had eric larson mark silvestri yeah wills portatio and jim valentino and i'd i'd have to say i think eric larson is the best artist out of all of them yeah he is he is. Uh, there's no, uh, like, maybe, well, okay, I, I'm not going to say maybe, because I feel like most people would say T-Mac was, but. Or Jim I, Lee. Or Jim Lee, yeah, but I'd probably, I, I'd go with Eric Larson, like, I still looking, I still like looking at his artwork today, and, like, when he's on, when he's uh, the artist on a project, like you just mentioned that Captain America project, and I'm, I, it, you know, it super caught my attention. I, I, I'm probably gonna make some effort to go look for it so that I can check it out, man. Yeah, totally, man. Yeah. The other funny thing about Eric Larson is that this story, uh, basically, he came on board Spider-Man right when Todd McFarlane left Spider-Man. So, so the Spider-Man. This volume of Spider-Man uh, was the volume that Todd McFarlane started. You know, they Marvel basically let him do his own book and have free reign to write and draw it because he was mm. such a big name at the time. So Todd McFarlane did the Spider-Man. And then when he had enough of Marvel and he left, Eric Larson came on board and did this story. But back in the day or a couple years before this, Todd McFarlane was drawing The Amazing Spider-Man while David Michelinie was writing it. And when Todd McFarlane left that book to do this book, Eric Larson took over <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man. Right, so right. So he was kind of known as the guy who uh, just followed Todd McFarlane. Yeah. <laughs> Strange, huh? <laughs> it's 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 a pretty weird coincidence, but... I mean, I know. guess they were friends, so maybe T-Mac recommended Eric Larson to, to take over. Yeah. So that that probably makes sense. Yeah. But considering how popular T Mac was at the time, it it is kind of uh, I I do wonder how Eric Larson felt about being known as the the guy that you know the guy that has to take over for the most popular artist in comics. Yeah, that is a good question. I wonder if he felt like pressure from that. It's it's weird coming from our perspective because we don't have too much respect for T Mac, if any. Yeah. So for us, it's like, oh man, Eric Larson is doing it. It's a step up. It's a massive improvement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, from his perspective, and we have to acknowledge this, uh, like 
clearly T-Mac was at at the top of his game, quote unquote, at this point. <laughs> so, you know, so the fans loved it. And I'm sure there was pressure on Eric Larson following him up. But I don't know. If he was here, I guess I'd tell him. You, you, you didn't have anything to worry about, bud. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you... Reading Revenge of the Sinister Six as an adult compared yeah. to your experience reading it as a kid, what would you say are the biggest differences in terms of how you uh, consumed or appreciated the story? Um... I I don't I I kind of hate saying this because I if I if I'm going to say it I'm I guess I I'm almost going to say it with love but on some level I have to be able to enjoy it almost ironically <laughs> I guess <laughs> <laughs> I but cuz now that I'm older and I I you know I I clearly have developed a more developed sense of taste and uh just how to read like there's just a lot of things that I didn't think about as a kid. You know, when you're a kid, uh, in terms of the story structure, there's just things that you don't think about. You're just the the story just moves along, and it's like, okay, I got from point A to point B to point C, and uh, what happens in between doesn't really matter as long as I I get a beginning, middle, and an end. You're that... just caught up in the story. Exactly. The, the rush of it. There's uh, a complete and total suspension of disbelief because you're just lost in the adventure. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So like, I don't, as a kid, I didn't catch myself thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Or wait, why is this happening? Why is that happening? You know, you're just, yeah, you're just along for the ride. Um, but as an adult, there's definitely things where I have to willfully suspend my disbelief in order to, uh, be able to digest it at all, almost, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I have to be in a position where I'm just like, you know what, it doesn't matter that some of these plot points or these story points don't make sense, that certain characters would just show up randomly and certain characters would just exit randomly. Like, okay, so if the Sinister Six are really as much of a threat as they profess to be in this series then you would assume that all the superheroes that are working with spider-man would stay on board to tackle this mm -hmm. uh through to the end but when you're reading this story people are just jumping in and out like constantly there are some occasions where it makes sense where like sleepwalker will just disappear and that makes sense because that's how Rick Sheridan's powers work. You know, he there's no telling when he's going to wake up. And yeah, Sleepwalker only exists in the real world when his human host is sleeping. <laughs> exactly. But Nova will be, like, there, and then all of a sudden he'll be like, oh, I got a call from the New Warriors, got to go, or something like that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Deathlock will show up, and then... Uh, you know, he'll get beaten up and he'll just disappear for a couple of issues. <laughs> Same thing with the Hulk, you know? And this is the Hulk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? 
even with adamantium arms, it's hard to believe that Doc Ock could beat the Hulk. Yeah, well, I will say this. Granted, this isn't the classic Hulk. This is the the 90s Hulk where he was merged, meaning he had the intellect of Banner and his strength, but he wasn't as strong as how he normally is. It's kind of like how we see the Hulk in Avengers Endgame. Yeah, it's kind of like that. It's the more civilized Hulk. Yeah, but even yeah. then, I still don't believe that Doc Ock could beat the Hulk in a physical yeah. confrontation. Well, but that's the thing. As a kid, when I read that, I was like, well, I guess he's got adamantium arms, so that must mean he's super powerful if he can beat up the Hulk. So I bought into it as a kid. As an adult, uh, not so much. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> I think Larson tries to give it a little bit of lip service towards credibility by having Doc Ock say, if I pick you up and lift you up with my arms, you've got no leverage. So when he did that, he was just able to, you know, throw Hulk around like a little rag doll. Yeah. But in in my opinion, uh, logically thinking through the Hulk's uh, power set, even if he didn't have any leverage, I feel like he could just grab one of Doc Ock's arms and then like, just yank the arm Whip super him. hard and mess him up. <laughs> right? Or, uh, or even even if the Hulk got thrown away, it shouldn't knock him out to the point where exactly. he doesn't show up for like three issues. Exactly. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's been punched by bigger and tougher things than, you know, just landing in a field somewhere. Yeah. Like, you, you would be able to just get back up and just shake it off and get back to it. Exactly. You know? Exactly. But that being said, like, I do think Eric Larson is constantly upping the stakes in this. So, you know, as a kid, I was like, by the time you get to the final couple of issues, I I was able to believe that they were working on a different level because, you know, by the end of issue six, what so what ends up happening is Sandman, we mentioned earlier, was a member of an earlier incarnation of the Sinister Six, but he decided that he didn't want to be a villain anymore. So he was trying to reform. He was trying to reform in the first couple of issues of the of this story. So Dr. Octopus takes him out off the board by turning him to glass. So what ends up happening is the Sinister Six are really the Sinister Five up until the last... I think two issues of the story where they introduce their sixth member, which is this giant monster called Gog. And, yeah. You know, this is, it's basically a Kaiju. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. It so, looks like one of those guys that he might've been a leftover from uh Marvel's old monster comics from back in the day. That probably like, it makes sense. It'd be a kind of deep cut. Or it'd probably be a deep cut just because I, I like I thought as a kid I thought he was just something completely new that they created just for the story. But now that you mention it, I there's a chance that he's an old property that Marvel just had laying around. Yeah. Well, even in use. the story where he appears, it's there are those footnotes in the story that tell you where he appeared in previous Marvel comics. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so so I read those and and uh, I realized that he had been around for a while, but I had never read any of those comics 
that were referenced and I had no way of obtaining them as a kid. Yeah. So I just had to take Marvel's word for it. Yeah. <laughs> but when I was but I will say that when I was a kid and I read these comics and I saw Gog for the first time, I mm-hmm. thought he was a big character too. Uh, I mean like an important character. Like I thought he was going to be someone that we would see come back time and time again, you know? Like I thought he would be <laughs> a regular member of Spider-Man's rogues. I was like I kept reading Spider-Man comics waiting for Gog to come back. It's like, when is Gog going to have his revenge, man? How is Spider-Man ever going to stop someone that huge? Yeah. But, yeah, well, I never saw him again. Yeah. Well, I was always the, under the impression that he was just a big, dumb monster, right? Like, he doesn't have any form of consciousness, does he? Uh, Well, it's not like he's a tree or something. He's still got to be at least as smart as an animal. Well, yeah. Okay. Okay. Do animals have consciousness, Albert? They may have consciousness, but I don't know if animals are capable of revenge. Uh, If you find a really mean-looking dog and steal his food, you should see what happens. That's not really revenge, though. That's more reflex. You should steal his food... And then come and then back wait tomorrow <laughs> and see if he remembers you. I'll tell you what. I will believe that a dog is capable of revenge when my life is in tatters and I open the door to find that the dog is there smoking a cigarette only to tell me that this has been a long time coming. That would be tough because... Dogs can't really talk. He doesn't have to say it with words. He can do it with, like, his eyes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to see a dog plot. That's all. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, In in regards to uh, the things that work for the story... Uh, one of the things that I have to mention, and I feel that this is a big part of it, is we we mentioned Eric Larson's art, but I feel like I have to pay special attention to his covers. And the thing about his covers is, oddly enough, they're not really like graphically designed. They're not necessarily uh, covers that are uh, when I look at his covers it really feels like it's just an extension of everything that's going on inside the actual comic is what I'm trying to say you know what I mean yeah like they they actually depict scenes that you might see in the story like they're not just posters of the characters posing or anything yeah I I mean mean, they are that but it's still kind of showing something that happens in the story yeah, like, I I would actually say they, they are kind of posters in, well, you, I guess you did say that, but it just feels like, I don't know, I don't know what your personal opinion on it is, but I I think when I think of covers, I I want something that's a little more presentation-like, you know? So... So maybe I am more into like the poster element or something that's more um, 
I guess organized, right? Those like, covers are pretty busy, but I think that was just the general sensibility of the time. You know, it was the early yeah, 90s. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was drawing all sorts of stuff all over yeah. everything. Yeah. Lines but, everywhere. Yeah. But I will say, like, in this case, I actually enjoy it a lot because certainly as a kid, when I looked at these covers, it made me want to know what was going on inside the actual comics. Oh, yeah, totally. I you loved know? these covers when I was a kid. I think yeah. as an adult, as my tastes have shifted, I'm not particularly impressed with them. But I, I do think that the for early 90s, the coloring is pretty good. Not just on the covers, but on the insides, too. Like It, it still looks... I don't know. I mean, to me, I, th- I think the coloring holds up. That's probably one of my favorite aspects of, of the art here. Like, it just looks it looks nice. Yeah. Were there any things that worked for you, Drew? Like, that you want to pay, that you feel deserve special mention or attention, aside from the coloring, uh, like, story-wise? Um, I mean... The main thing is really just the art. Like, that's probably... If it wasn't Eric Larson drawing this, I think it would have been a a really big slog to go back through this as an adult. Yeah. Because, to be honest, the story doesn't hold up. Like, it's it's not a particularly well-plotted or well-written story. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a lot of logical issues or logical failures in the story. Uh, it it just it just doesn't work on a whole lot of levels, but the art is just entertaining, fun to look at. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's Eric Larson's art from the early '90s, so there are definitely some traits where you can see. Oh, he's he was probably influenced at least a little bit by his buddy T Mac. You know, yeah. you can see uh, the T Mac influence on how he draws Spider Man, where or Spider Man's webs where it's not just a line, but it's like a bunch of squiggly lines to make it look like a complicated thread. And, you know, his webs are all over the place. Yeah. He's got Spider-Man posed in these crazy positions where a real person doesn't really bend or isn't as flexible as that, you know, but it makes sense because it's Spider-Man. Yeah, exactly. That's something that T-Mac always did. You know, I'll I'll give (laughs) T-Mac credit for that. Drawing gross looking webs and for having spider-man pose like a spider <laughs> what what i mean, like i i love how you were saying you give him credit for drawing gross looking webs <laughs> oh that's a compliment dude yeah yeah yeah. it's like when you when you see a, a t-mac or an eric larson spider-man web yeah if you saw that coming at you in real life you would not want to get hit by it <laughs> true that true that true that it, i mean it, it just looks nasty to 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 have that touch you yeah. I didn't so, want to... Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I did want to, like, piggyback on what you were saying. Um, yeah, like, to be honest, this was a six-issue comic, and I feel like it could have been far less. It could have been two. Been, yeah, right? It could have been two. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention, and this might... Again, this is another uh, maybe backhanded compliment, but uh, to your point about how if anybody else other than Eric Larson had done it, uh, this would have been a failure as a comic in all likelihood. 
what I was going to say is I'd even make that point. I, I would even make that point for his writing because, you know, for all his uh, weakness or as a writer, like he doesn't overburden you with too much text. So you're not reading a Claremont comic basically, right? So, so I think he gives it just enough text where I can read, where I was able to read this comic at enough of a pace and, and the text doesn't get in the way of the art uh, that he's drawing so that I could, you know, it's just enough to tell me the story that I need to, to, to read uh, to give me the information that I need to know and then it gets out of the way so that I can appreciate the art. <laughs> uh, I think there are a couple scenes, though, where I was like, dude, why did he write so much, you know? Uh-huh. Like, why did he write so many words here? I'm thinking of especially of that one issue where after one of the fights, Spider-Man gets knocked out, and then he wakes up in a lab where yeah. the kindly scientists have patched him up with a cast that makes him look like a cyborg because his yeah. arm is, is fractured, and... There's a scene when he wakes up in in the room and the doctor is talking with him. There's just a mountain of text, like just so many word balloons. It's like totally expositional to the point where it, you really don't need it. It, it, it does like, I I guess I understand that Eric Larson probably wanted to explain everything. Yeah. But there's really no real need for it and i i just think it's it's not very it's just not good <laughs> like it, yeah. it it it's it's not necessarily claremont level because at least he's not using a bunch of big words and stuff like the the dialogue it still sounds like a person might talk like that even yeah. though a person probably wouldn't explain that much stuff yeah yeah no, that but at least sense. he's not—he's not overrun with with purple prose. Yeah. And there there are a couple of other scenes I noticed. Well, when I was reading it as an adult, where the characters will will basically narrate what they're doing, or or just give these grandiose speeches that are—they're just kind of corny, or uh, you know, they're not really things that I I would believe somebody in that circumstance would actually say like there's a scene in the first issue where sandman he you know he's trying to be on the straight and narrow at this point and he's checking up on this family that he used to live with since he was reformed because mm-hmm. he used to i guess he was like one of their tenants and he made a friendship with them so yeah. him being uh, a former member of the sinister six i guess it was always you know conveniently enough he was always concerned that dr octopus would try to you know kill them kill them and yeah. to to hurt Sandman. So like it starts off with the scene of him, you know, taking a stroll in the neighborhood so he can do a walk past that house. And he's thinking all these things where it's like, you know, basically giving you the history of who this family is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And his worry that Dr. Octopus will hurt them. And then the next panel, the house explodes. (laughs) He's like, no, no. And he runs over to the house and, you know, he's looking at all the rebel and he's just talking so much. It's it's actually kind of funny. Like, here, let me read it to you, man. It, it's it's funny. He runs over to the rubble and he says, You monster! You animal! 
How could you do it? They were nothing to you. Nothing. Turning my body to glass wasn't enough for you. You have nothing to gain from this. Nothing. Maybe you did get one thing out of this. You've got me mad. Mad enough to come after you. Beware, Ock. You've got the Sandman hating your guts. It's time that someone teaches you a thing or two about fear. I'm coming for you, Octopus. And I won't stop until you're dead. And he's just on his knees with his fist raised in anger. It's... It's funny, man. It's, it's I'm enjoying cartoon. your version of it. I'm I'm yeah, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the only thing that could make that better is if you read the same scene in your 1920s Chicago gangster voice. Yeah, see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cheese it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I can't say that Eric Larson has a good ear for dialogue. It's 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 pretty corny. It's pretty dated. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I would, I would agree. It doesn't with that. hold up. It's been, I want to say, maybe a little over a year since I read this, mm-hmm. and I certainly got those impressions as well. Like he, I think, coming back into it after not having read it for such so many years, uh, there was a part of me that was hopeful that, you know, it's it would sound better than I thought it would. And he certainly didn't meet those expectations, but I was able to appreciate it uh, in spite of that, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was so familiar with the story that I remembered even specific scenes, like that scene I mentioned where Spidey wakes up in the lab and talks to that scientist, and and the scientist dude just gives him this massive spiel. Like, I... I think even as a kid, I remember thinking, whoa, these two pages have a lot of words. <laughs> yeah. Huh. I guess one thing I, I did appreciate about the story, one thing that I did, uh, ideas. Like, I don't think his execution was the best, but I do like how eric larson made spider-man more of a motor mouth like he was the guy that was trying to do wisecracks when he was fighting people yeah and i'm not even gonna say that the stuff that spider-man was saying made me laugh or i thought it was witty or funny but you know you you get the gist of it you you get that eric larson is trying to make spider-man that's uh you know that that guy who's always wisecracking yeah yeah. I also thought what Eric Larson did with Spider-Man with uh Peter and MJ like that that uh subplot where they were talking about her career uh I guess I yeah that that worked for me like it it's something that I could it's the kind of conversation that you would probably expect a married couple to have especially if one of them was an actress. But mm. like you said, like the execution was still kind of off because, you know, Peter's saying, Aunt May is going to have a heart attack. And it's like, <laughs> is that really what's going to happen? <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's kind of old timey, right? Like it feels like something that would that someone would say in like the 50s or the 20s or, you know, like where they'd be like, Oh, for heaven's sake! <laughs> and she's Heavens gonna to Murgatroyd. Yeah, she's gonna have a fainting spell, and then you know 
her humors are going to hurt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or something like that. But but the basic concept of it still makes sense to me. It, I mean, the basic concept of Peter just being... He's not fully supportive of the idea of her just going to play in this blockbuster so she can show off her boobs. You know, like that that feels like a pretty understandable conversation topic where it's you'd not, want to discuss that. Yeah. It's yeah. not a plot point that's so far out of the realm of possibility, right? Yeah. It it well, adds a little so. humanity to to the characters. Yeah. Yeah. I I I can honestly say for all the married superheroes that were around in the era in that era um none of them seem to have that problem <laughs> that specific problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is true that is so, very true so uh, good on you eric <laughs> eric <Yeah>. mr larson <laughs> um, but other than that it's it would be hard for me to talk about anything else that worked in the story because i i don't think that a whole lot holds up yeah it's really just big dumb fun for me that's really that's the main thing it's just big dumb fun it's nostalgic yeah if if you didn't grow up reading these comics i probably wouldn't recommend them to you unless you were trying to do a history lesson give yourself a history lesson and just see what was popular back at the time yeah i'd I'd probably I'd probably have to agree with that. If I did recommend it to someone, I'd probably just say, don't read it, just look at the pictures. Just look at the picture. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably the extent of my recommendation, is like, yeah, just skim it, you know? Yeah, you'll get the gist of it. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I thought was silly, too, and I didn't think it was silly when I was a kid, yeah. but definitely as an adult, it's hard for me to swallow, but the idea of Dr. Octopus's plan to take over the world like number one that's way more ambitious than i ever imagined <laughs> from dr octopus yeah like he he literally plots to take over the world and his plot his scheme involves recruiting the sinister six to join his side never mind that there's a plethora of other supervillains in the marvel universe that are way more competent than he yeah. that he could try to hook up with but he, he looks for his longtime cronies who have you know been beaten up by spider-man time and time again his plan is to recruit them to his side and then find use this portal at some lab that opens up to a different dimension and he'll they go to that dimension they find gog and recruit him to join their side and they find a bunch of weapons and reprogram a bunch of robots and then they from there they go with all their new weapons and robots to a hydra base and they take over the Hydra base and kill all the Hydra soldiers there. With the Hydra base under their control, they have access, Dr. Octopus has access to a global network of satellites that can destroy the world. So there you go. Apparently, <laughs> Hydra has enough lasers. They had the means orbit. to destroy the world all along. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they just never did it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had forgotten what the actual plan was until you mentioned it just now. I was like, what were they trying to do? Because <laughs> when I was thinking about it, I was like, the way that I remembered it was they were going to take over Hydra and basically use their resources and their army to, uh, I guess, rule the world or, or something. But 
Yeah, but it didn't make too much sense. I, I, I will disagree in that I do think... I don't think Dr. Octopus is a jobber. I do think that he has... If he wanted to take over the world, I'm not going to say that he's like up there with Kang or anything, but yeah, I, I, I'm not going to outright say that I find it unbelievable that Dr. Octopus would try or maybe on his best day he'd be able to do it, you know? So, like, I'll give him that. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't pigeonhole him into being just another bank robber or anything like that. He's certainly better than just another bank robber, but yeah. for someone so smart, I do think he has an overinflated opinion of his own capabilities. And I think the only reason why I could imagine him trying to take over the world was because of this story. If not for this story, I think most of his plots tend to be they're not really that ambitious i mean there was that one story where he wanted revenge on tony stark for something or other right yeah in uh matt fractions run that's not exactly yeah that's that's not exactly taking over the world that's a revenge plot so that that makes sense and then i guess i guess you could say superior spider-man was a dr octopus story and he ended up getting Spider-Man uh well when he was when he was in Spider-Man's body he ended up creating this successful uh corporation so at least he was yeah successful in a in a business sense yeah but that's that's not exactly it's uh, not world you know, domination <laughs> yeah and and I would even say in Revenge of the Sinister 6 it wasn't by the time you get to the to the peak of the story, it wasn't even really about world domination. It was about him literally destroying the world. Yeah. Like he, was, like yeah. He, he was sitting at a console and yelling at the heroes, if you don't, you know, back off or whatever, I'm gonna push this bun and this entire world will be torn asunder, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like that's uh I mean, even if he was bluffing. Yeah, it, it it's one of those things where I just find that incredibly silly and hard to believe. And then you you look at the next panel and Mr. Fantastic, you know, because the Fantastic Four just happened to show up. He, he's <laughs> all he does is just pull the plug from the console, and that's when Doctor Octopus has lost the fight. <laughs> that's pretty funny. It's yeah, Actually, it, it's cartoonish. Uh, and and what's it called? And even the Fantastic Four element of that plot that just came back to me, like. I remember Spider-Man early on was trying to contact the Fantastic Four, but they just didn't happen to show up because they were just busy or something like that. Yeah. And then they were busy. In the last, yeah, in the last issue, they finally show up because they got his message. Yeah. <laughs> he left a message on their answering machine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you know, always leave a message. Don't just hang up. <laughs> <laughs> Let that be a lesson, kids. You know, we almost uh, got to the end of this, and we didn't say Solo's tagline. Solo lives, terror dies. (laughs) (laughs) Yarg! (laughs) Solo is that one character 
that when you need a, a character with guns and you can't use the Punisher for some reason, <laughs> you go to Solo. He's like a future Punisher because he has guns, but they're like laser guns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he can teleport. Yep. <laughs> uh, he's, a, he's a pretty lame character, but this comic... When I was a kid, that was the only comic that I uh, that I knew about where he was in. You know, like I didn't, I didn't, I never saw him anywhere else. Yeah. And well, he just looks like a typical '90s dude, man. He's got yeah gigantic shoulder pads. For sure. A bunch sure. of grenades strapped across his chest. A bunch of little pouches and straps all around his entire body, like his around his biceps, his thighs, his his shins. He's just a gun dude. Yeah. Straight up. Just straight up gun dude. You know? That's that's his whole thing is just I'm just going to shoot these things up and blow these things up and look cool doing it. <laughs> Did he look cool? Uh as a kid I was I I don't know if I loved him enough where I was like I want a solo comic but you know. <laughs> As a kid, I was into the idea that, in, into the idea of him having a bunch of machine guns. I was like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, what kid doesn't want that? Exactly, right? That's just the power fantasy right there. Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, this, these comics were the ones that made me into Deathlock. I was pretty into Deathlock because of these yeah. issues. Yeah, he was fun. I'm trying to think. And I will say. Just as an aside, the, that 90s run on Deathlock by Dwayne McDuffie and Dennis Cowan, that's yeah. that's a true hidden gem of the 90s. Like, those comics still hold up as 90s comics. They, they still hold up today. Mm. Nice. It's uh, something I'd want to check out. I, I remember seeing a few of them, and uh, I don't remember if they were from the same run, but I, I do think that the art was pretty cool. Yeah. Was that Dennis yeah. Cowan? Yeah. 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 Uh Yeah, man, like you you mentioned here on this list that there were a lot of characters that show up over the course of this series and we mentioned earlier that they come and they go and it's really random, but you know, just for the sake of fun, uh, I, I guess I did appreciate that because it really just feels like it's a giant to toy box where Eric Larson is just taking all of the various characters that <laughs> that he has access to yeah, and just throwing true. them throwing them in there into like a box and just shaking the box around and that's essentially the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm gonna take twenty action figures, throw them into this box close the lid and then I'm just going to shake it and that's my story. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, now that you mention it, even though I wouldn't recommend this story uh to anyone today, I guess I might recommend it to kids. Like if yeah. I knew if I knew I don't know like a a 9 or a 11-year-old that was interested in Spider-Man this could be something that I could give to a kid and, you know, I'm sure it'd still be as fun for a kid today as it was for a kid back then. Yeah. 
Yeah, there isn't. Uh, yeah, maybe some of the stuff about Mary Jane and uh, you know exposing her breasts. Uh, Look, man, I read this when me. I was eight years old, and I turned out fine. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll take you on that. I'll take your word on that. So, all right. Um, you heard it here. Uh, teach your kids that talking about uh, whether women should expose their breasts or not at an early age, that's a fine discussion to have. <laughs> <laughs> you talk to them about it. <laughs> Look, I didn't say I would give it to my kid. <laughs> I'll just give it to somebody else's kid and let their parents deal with it. <laughs> what is what is Mary Jane going to do here exactly, Mom and Dad? <laughs> Mommy, what's a nude scene? <laughs> Are those in movies? Is that a thing that they do? <laughs> is that how you become famous? <laughs> is that how you get a career in acting <laughs> there was a, another funny scene in the between uh peter and mj where they were talking about music and mary jane was calling him out for not being hip because he didn't like anything that was recorded in recent times he only liked older music and she was trying I to get him yeah, she was trying to get him to listen to Guns N' Roses and In Excess. Yeah. So that that's kind of funny to me now. It's pretty it. funny. Yeah. The stuff that Spider-Man was, that the stuff that Peter was into, that that has held up way better. Because <laughs> he was like, hey, I like Elvis Costello. <laughs> you know. And she and was it, like ragging on him for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's pretty humorous now. Yeah. That is pretty funny. <laughs> so I, I guess I guess we could say that this does have some 90s pop culture references. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you have any other thoughts or anything? Uh, anything that you felt was uh, noteworthy about the series? Two of the issues had backup stories yeah they did and i can't say that they were anything uh worth mentioning or remembering uh like rereading the series uh i i will say that that just added to my belief that i i, I wouldn't say that they put those backup stories in there purposefully as padding or anything but it certainly solidified in my mind that Eric Larson's Spider-Man story could have been somewhat smaller than the six issues that we did get. <laughs> well, here's the thing. In the letters column, they actually explain why those two issues had backup stories. Yeah. So those two issues, Eric Larson drew 12 pages instead of the normal 22. And the reason why was because he was falling behind on his deadline. Mm-hmm. But the the reason why he fell behind his on his deadlines was because in the early 90s, or I guess right around the time he was working on this, 
there was a, a fire in the East Bay because I think he lived in Oakland or oh, Berkeley or someplace. I remember that. I yeah, remember that his, fire. his house burned down. Oh, that's that's rough. Yeah. Yeah. So you know that's a that's a pretty uh, understandable reason why. Yeah. He couldn't uh, do the full issue. I mean, I'm I'm shocked that he didn't even like skip an issue entirely. You know, like it's yeah, yeah. kind of incredible that he was still a soldier and you know kept on the monthly yeah. schedule. So you yeah. gotta you gotta respect that. Yeah, that's a uh, that's good information to have. Yeah, the, but the backup story itself, I I, I tried to reread it this time around when I was reading the Larson story. But, yeah, I couldn't make it through, man. Terry Kavanaugh, man, jobber. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I think I was, like, falling asleep trying to read it. And it wasn't <laughs> even that long, honestly. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, there was one other thing that I forgot to mention that I want to bring up now. Uh, was, uh, well, a couple of things, but... The last issue of the uh, Sinister Six story arc, the cover is actually a gatefold. So it flips out and it's basically three panels and it just makes one giant picture. And that's yeah. really cool. And it's it's pretty chaotic. Like it shows the Sinister Six on one side and then just Spider-Man and all of his allies on the other side. And they're just kind of running towards or yeah, they're just running towards each other or rather the sinister six is waiting for all of them to charge them you know but yeah it, it's, it's just, got a weird perspective yeah but again it's just it just goes hand in hand with all of the like crazy kinetic energy of everything that eric larson is doing in the comic it's just yeah man it's just nuts yeah, as and far pretty as fun to look at. go, that was probably a good one, the gatefold yeah. cover. Yeah. The other thing that, and this is a pretty minor thing to mention, but I still feel like it's worth mentioning. One of the one of the plot elements was that, um, and this was, again, something else that was put in there to show that the sinister sex were going to be contenders for these top spots, but uh, Dr. Octopus ends up getting them all getting the other members of the Sinister Six these, like, augment weapon, augmentations that are supposed to boost their powers. Which um, are basically just guns. They're basically just guns. The only one who <laughs> even had anything close to an augmentation was Electro. He had these, like... <laughs> I thought this was cool as a kid, but they, it was basically a backpack that was connected to, like, hand blasters that were... I that I assume amplify his powers, but everybody else, they just got like cannons and machine guns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you got hobgoblin toting a couple of bazookas. Yeah. And everybody else just has machine guns or submachine guns. Yeah. It was and the nineties, man. Guns, it was the 90s. guns galore. Yeah. But I was, uh, you know, I was into that, man. Yeah, I was into it when I was a kid too, man. Yeah, it's as it's, an adult, I can laugh at it, and that's that's a type of enjoyment. I'm tickled by it. Like I, yeah, it's I don't, ticklish. I don't genuinely enjoy it now as an adult because you know it's it's 
it's not enough. Uh, just just seeing a bunch of you know generic guns. Uh, but it's like okay, that's kind of I I can appreciate why I would have been into it. Yeah, it's more about that, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Anything else about the story before we uh, sign off? Yeah, I I feel like that's uh, that that pretty much it. Uh, sums up everything that we've got to say about it you know I, I think i think that is the extent of it for me so, so does going through this comic and talking about it again does it inspire you to dig up and reread other of your favorite stories from your youth um or is it better just to let the past stay buried i will say talking to you now about it some of the other titles that we mentioned earlier I do have some curiosity about revisiting those. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd commit myself to reading it thoroughly, but if I found Invasion of the Spider Slayers for a quarter a pop, I might get those just to flip through them and, you know, relive my my exposure mm-hmm. to my my earliest exposures to Spider-Man. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. What if that, what if you could just borrow it for free at the library? Yeah, that's a comic that I I don't even think like I feel like if I went on Comicsology they might have it, but I I don't think that's collected anywhere honestly. But is if it, it was one of those epic collections, I don't I, know. I'm not even I, sure. Yeah, yeah. I suppose if I you know what if I saw it at the library I I might pick it up just to again. I, I don't think I'm going to commit myself to, like, reading it, actually reading it. I would borrow it just to flip through it and... Yeah, just look know, at it. Yeah, uh, what's, immerse myself in my nostalgia, you know? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it, and and I'm okay with that, you know, for for sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What about you? Do you feel like there are any other old Spider-Man stories that you want to uh, seek out now? Uh, or... I guess... It's along the same lines as what you said. If I found them for cheap in a quarter bin, I might pick them up. I mean, if it was like the full story arc, if it was one random issue, probably not. I was thinking about Web of Spider-Man and like the issues, the stories that were going on around in the early 90s that I remember enjoying. Like there was this one story called The Name of the Rose. Mm. I don't remember the story that well, but I remember enjoying it when i was a kid and i haven't it's not something that i've found as an adult so i haven't looked at it in a bunch of years but that's something that for nostalgia reasons i would pick up Mm. Uh, the other spider-man stories that we mentioned earlier was the jmd mateus stuff from spectacular spider-man yeah that still absolutely holds up so yeah that that's not just a nostalgic comic. That's still one of the best Spider-Man comics anyone can read today. Yeah, I completed that run like a couple of years ago, and I just read it probably a little over a year ago. I can honestly say, reading it as an adult, that it's not it's not perfect. There are like some bits that are dated here and there, but overall, it's still pretty excellent. You know? Yeah, it's still totally. a great comic. That's something I wish they would do a proper collection of. Yeah, I totally wish that I could get like a hardcover or an omnibus or something, you know? Totally, man. Which is weird because it's not even that long. It's not a substantially like, you know, we're used to omnibuses that are 
20 something issues or well i guess there are deluxe editions that are like 12 issues but it's more than a deluxe edition maybe a little less than your standard omnibus all right i guess that's all we have to say about revenge of the sinister six yep we'll post some pictures up so that you guys can appreciate the art uh, if you have any questions, like feel free to message us on any of our social media stuff, uh, or you can just email us directly at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. Uh, DM us on our Instagram if you just have any questions about it, or if you have any recommendations about uh, classic Spider-Man stories from your youth, or any classic comics from or ge- any classic comics from your youth that you think that we should check out. We'd love to uh, talk to you guys about it, you know? Yeah, I'd be very curious and interested in hearing what other people grew up reading. I mean, whether you're our age or if you're younger or older, everybody's got different comics that they grew up reading for the first time and they were, you know, still formative in their formative years and still (laughs) discovering their, uh, you know, their interest in comics. So there's just something I enjoy about hearing those kind of stories, you know, like what, what did you like to read when you were yeah. first getting into comics? It's definitely a shared experience thing. We all have, regardless of what, it, what, what comic it was that got us into it. We all can connect on the feelings that were generated when, when we came across whatever that thing was that whatever comic that was, that got us into it, you know? That's something that we can all uh, connect with each other on, for sure. Exactly. All right. Next week, in our next episode, we're going to continue our read-through of Invincible. We'll be looking at volumes six and seven. So if you've been reading that with us, uh, yeah, just a heads up. And if you haven't been reading it, well, we still hope that you tune in and just enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Between the Gutters, signing off. Hi, guys. Peace.